Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Justin and Lauren. This week on The Grange Point, we take a trip under the sea. We find out some amazing things that fish are getting up to to stay cool in the summers in North Great Barrier Reef in North Queensland. We also found out about some of the interesting evolutionary journeys of a very unusual type of fish in the Great Lakes. We're going to kick things off first, though, with our City of Science section. I'm going to find out more exactly what are the Great Lakes and why they're our City of Science for this week. Uh, uh... The fish capital of the world. Atlanta isn't even in the ocean. (laughs) It sounds like Atlantis. I I know it does. You're you're right. But my understanding of US geography is that Atlanta is not near the ocean. In fact, it's a landlocked city. It's (laughs) kind of near some rivers. But, you know, not really. It's like pretty much dead center of the United States of America. My understanding of um, American geography is just New York is the entire place of America. Yeah, that that is a reasonable thing. I mean, Atlanta's in the south. It's in Georgia. Sorry, it's not in the dead center, but it's, you know, the north of the south, but it's definitely not near the ocean. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's probably not the best place for an aquatic city of science. Lake Michigan, on the other hand, Lake Michigan is one of the great lakes, the five great lakes in North America. And it's basically almost an inland sea. These Great Lakes are all kind of connected. If you look in the gap between Canada and America and the kind of northeast, there's all these squiggly, big, spot, splotchy spaces. That They're the Great Lakes. They're huge inland seas. And they sort of divide up lots of different states. Lake Michigan in particular divides up Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. Um, now, the word for Michigan is believed to have come from the Ojibwa word Michigami, meaning great water, which is pretty appropriate for uh, one of the massive lakes interestingly enough it's it's about 500 kilometers wide and 200 kilometers long which means that it has a huge amount of water living in it water that probably stays in it for about 100 years before the full water cycle takes effect but it's only about 200 meters deep used to be a glacial lake and now it's sort of just hanging out in the middle of north america We're talking about lake michigan as our city of science for this week because that's where the yellow perch lives and that's why we're and it's a great ecological story that we sort of have found out a lot about this week. So that's why Lake Michigan is our, curiously, our city of science as one of the five great lakes in North America. So if you're just a a fish swimming around in your nice little cosy home of a lake, you get pretty settled into your environment. You you make a nice little place for yourself and your offspring, and you really adapt to its surroundings. You kind of blend in, and you know what's coming for it. But if that were to suddenly change, that could upturn your entire world. It'd be like if someone rearranged all the locks on your house, and you'd have to figure out how to get into your house again, or how to really survive there. And something unusual has been happening to Yellow Perch in Lake Michigan, who've had to undergo some pretty rapid evolution to adapt to some unusual circumstances. So what's what's going on here, Lauren? So as we know, overfishing is a thing. It's a thing that happens. We fish as many fish as we can out of the ocean, and that can have some negative effects on the fish that we find. Um, so what's happened in a lot of different lakes 
is that once fish reach a certain size, um, that's when they get fished out because that's, you know, you want a certain size of fish. Yeah, and we, we set the rules. So, like, you can only pick up a fish that's this big. And so then anything else under that, we, we let it go back into the ocean and, or, or river or creek or what have you. And that's how we keep this species alive. So I guess that's good. But what that means is only the small fish are surviving to reproduce. Oh, well, that is a problem. So as we've actually seen with the yellow perches, especially in um, places like Lake Michigan, is that they've actually dramatically decreased in size. The perch we're finding now are not nearly as big as the ones we used to find. Right, because all of the, uh, well, the, all of the big fish have basically just been like, well, they're eaten, so they're not really left around to reproduce, so I guess I'm just going to have to reproduce with you, slightly smaller fish, and then there's two slightly other smaller fish reproduce with each other as well, and we just go on a never-ending path downstream from there. So what we've actually, like... At that point, what was hypothesized by basically most researchers in like animal conservation and stuff like that is that it was going to take a long time. If we stopped fishing it, if we stopped fishing, it was going to take a long time for those tiny little perches to actually reach their previous size. Right, because, you know, it, evolution is something that happens on a slow, ponderous, millennial pace, not something that, you know, you sort of flick a switch and everything sort of comes back to normal, right? That's not how biology works. No, you need to slowly wait until all of those, till mutations happen so that you end up with fish that are slightly bigger and they, you end up with more fish with more mutations just creating it back into that gene pool. Because before that point, that gene for larger fish had been completely wiped out and non-existent. Right, you know, basically it had been fished out. <laughs> exactly. So 15 years ago, there was actually a ban on fishing in certain lakes for these perch fish to see in a study how long it would take them to reach back to their normal size or at least develop more of a rate of how um, big they were growing over a period of time. Right, to basically see, well, now that we've put in some protection for them, uh, will they actually get back to their big size and, and you know have a long-term study on them because we expected it to take some time. And what we've actually found is rather than over the span of a couple of decades... Um, well, hundreds of years... Over a span of instead of over a span of a hundred years, we've found that the perch have actually dramatically increased in size, and that's just been over for the last like twenty years. They've dramatically increased. Which, and when you think about it, the reproductive cycle of you know of fish, okay, it's it's faster than humans, right? So we're not waiting, you know, twenty five years for another generation, but it's not that fast. Like you know, Drosophila and fluke flies have a really quick evolutionary cycle, but fish, not so much. In fact, the old fish it used to take around about three or four years to reach maturity, but under the intense like fishing conditions, they actually decreased that age to get to maturity. It only took two years for fish to become full-sized. Right, and that, that's actually a really important part of this evolutionary chain here, because so, effectively they're reproducing faster, which is great for the fish, but also it's actually helping them get back to a bigger size overall as well as their, their reproductive evolutionary timescale increases. So researchers have just been, like, completely stumped. They estimated that it was going to take God knows how many years for these fish to start reaching bigger sizes again. But we're already seeing that dramatic change, which they've come up with a few different reasons to why they think this has happened. Okay, so what could it be? Because, I mean, when we often think of evolution, we think of something slow, ponderous, and really quite complicated. And I guess it's a bit of a shock to these biologists to have to try and figure out, well, hang on, what could actually explain this now? 
So what they actually think is that small um, maturation rate that you were talking about before, like the two years or four years to reach like adulthood, that small amount of time is actually what's helping them heal. So because they can go through so many generations so quickly, um, there's actually more of a um, chance for those that genetic gene pool to open up again. Yeah, but even saying, saying it only takes two years, that's only like 20 cycles. That's only 10 cycles over 20 years. That's, <laughs> that's not uh, that 10 cycles over 20 years is not a lot of cycles and really to change the whole population size. Definitely not. One of the other things they think might be the fact that um, some of the places where this is happening, they're connected to other fishing-like areas. So maybe it's been a mix in that genetic pool. So the um, new new genetic, like, genetic material has been brought in. So should that are slightly larger have been brought in again. Yeah, and it's sort of all the fast reproduction cycle time is helping them out sort of spread those changes even faster. The fact that it's got a bit of protection now also insulates it a bit more. So I guess that helps a lot as well. Whereas if it was like in an isolated environment, chances are it would have taken a lot longer. Maybe not as long as we were thinking, um, considering how much we've observed from these other fish, but still a lot longer, considering there wasn't new genetic material being brought in. Right, and I guess this really uh, helps challenge the concept that we often think of evolution as this kind of really slow tree with a clear definitive end. So you go from being a single-celled organism, you go up to the next step and the next step and the next step, and it's a one-way path. But in this case, it's kind of the opposite of that. And the thing is, you think things like... So we can understand how fishing could affect... Um, like the size of fishes, it's a very strong factor. Like we're yeah. specifically taking out large we, fish. We are selecting. <laughs> we are causing the selection. So you think natural selection, yeah, that would take a hell of a lot longer because there's no like positive influence. There's nothing really influencing towards bigger fish. That's right. And so it's something they're still trying to investigate and figure out, but why is this happening so fast? Um and once we do, it'll really help with our understanding of other other types of um, fish that exist. And if there are ways that we can help prevent negative effects from overfishing on those fish as well. Yeah, and it just goes to show that, you know, even if we, we can damage some of our ecosystems through overfishing or over overconsumption, it doesn't necessarily doom a species. We can still bring it back and it, we might be able to rescue things from the brink that we thought were much further gone than we thought before. Not all hope is lost. It's still got a lot of negative effects, but we still have hope. We can we can recover, hopefully. And those fish, these brave yellow perch in Lake Michigan, they're fighting the good fight, getting smaller through evolutionary selection and then getting bigger again once the threat is removed and they're protected. So good on these perch. And the researchers at Purdue's Department of Forestry and Natural Resources uh, for actually investigating this and this amazing journey that these fish are overtaking. We'll see what the next 20 years have in store for these little guys. So when it's really hot outside and it's a sticky summer day, I can think of nothing better than diving into the cool, calm, refreshing waters of water in North Queensland near the Great Barrier Reef and, you know, relaxing and chilling out. But unfortunately, as the climate changes and our our water sea levels rise, our temperatures are also increasing, particularly our, our ocean temperatures. 
And that means that the fish who live in these beautiful tranquil seas in the Great Barrier Reef, they're suddenly not as chilled and relaxed as they used to be, which can cause some obviously distressing problems for these little guys. So what's happening here, Lauren, with these fish? So what the researchers at James Cook University have found is that fish don't enjoy being hot. Really? I thought that would have been quite attractive for them. I know, right? But apparently they prefer being a bit cool. So, what they've actually done here, sorry, I'm laughing at my own joke, (laughs) is that... So what the scientists have actually done is they tagged 60 different red throat emperor fish in Heron Island um, near the Great Barrier Reef. And so these fish were had transmitters on them that identified all of them individually so they could tell which individual fish was. Um, and basically just they just monitored where they were found and also the conditions of where they were found um, over a period of time. Which is really important because, Mike, when you think about those fish, and can you picture a school of fish swimming around a coral reef and you know how they all just disperse and travel their own way and they'll come back together in a group? If you really want to study fish, you, you kind of have to just go to the extreme lengths of sticking a tracker on all of them and then just watching them, hoping you see where they go. So this makes it a bit easier. And the thing is, like, you can't just guess that one specific individual, like, um, factor is going to cause anything. So you've got to make sure that you're monitoring for a specific, a whole bunch of factors. For example, this time the research team were considering temperature, air pressure rainfall, wind and moon phases. Wind and moon phase? That that seems a little bit uh, uh, horoscopy rather than scientific. Well, Justin, if you do remember, we did a story a while back based on the fact that I think it was dung beetles found their way based on the stars. That's that's very true. And I guess the the moon phase does have a lot to do with tides. So I guess that (laughs) is an important factor for fish. And what they've actually found is... Um, based on the different temperatures, um, they could actually predict where fish were going to head. So these fish were actually found in, when the temperature was warmer, they were actually found in deeper water. They specifically went to go and hide in deeper um, depths where it was cooler. And on cooler days, they could be found still on reefs and things like that in the shallower end. Right, but when it got hot, they kind of ran for cover, so to speak, deeper into the ocean. So what they actually found was the the um, red-throat emperor, the type of fish they were uh, researching, was actually couldn't be found in water that was above 24 degrees Celsius. Right, so it kind of has a limit on how, how hot it can get before it sort of says, that's it, I need to be cooler. Pretty much exactly that. So this could have a lot of um, negative effects on, like we mentioned in one of our previous stories, on fishing. Because if you end up with these fish, for example, they could tolerate depths of up, up to 160 metres. So these fish could be found 160 metres down as the temperature starts rising, which is going to make it very hard for us to go and start fishing them up. Which is which is good, I guess, for the fish's survival, but it also means that even if 160 metres down, maybe the, that part of the ocean's not as deep, so it can't even get to that level, and the temperature that still doesn't drop cold enough for it, it means that that fish may have to move somewhere else to hopefully find somewhere where it can be chill and sort of relax again. Or it may not even be able to survive if it doesn't learn to adapt and the temperature starts rising all over the earth, then where exactly are they going to be able to survive? Are they going to have to... It's going to have to go deeper and deeper into the depths of the ocean, which is probably not that best place for that little fish to live. Especially since it'll be competing against all these other fish and other um, sea creatures who are also trying to escape the heat. 
That's right. Unless it adapts and comes up with a solution where it can tolerate a higher temperature, which over a long period of time it may be able to, but in the short term it's going to have to move to survive. And uh, these little these little fish, the uh, the red throat emperor fish, have actually been caught all the way over in Western Australia near Perth. That's a, that, so. If you if you picture where the north eastern tip of Australia is, that's that's kind of where Heron Island is. Perth is the exact opposite end of the country <laughs> on the southwestern end of Australia. So some of these fish have been going that far away to sort of find a nice, chill and relaxing spot to survive. So we've already started to see some of that migration taking place. So it just goes to show that some of the impacts from warming oceans and global climate means that our animals will have to adapt to survive. And at the moment, the red throat emperor fish are adapting by swimming deeper to maintain a temperature less than 24 degrees for them because otherwise it's just too hot for them to handle this has been the young scientists of australia's podcast lagrange point this week we've talked about some of the exciting evolutionary paths taken by fish to survive as well as how things stay cool in our warming oceans our ending theme was composed by audio head to ysa.org.au for more information about the young scientists of australia